I am so excited that you are here. Hey, my name is Tyler Holder, and I am the pastor of men's and young adult discipleship here at Gospel City, and I just want to add my word of welcome. Welcome to Gospel City Church. Welcome to 2023. It was a whole year ago when we met, and I'm excited to be here. See, that was a New Year's joke. You missed the cue, right? It's totally fine. I, I get it once a year, right? So welcome to Gospel City Church. Hey, let me ask you a question. How many of you have your Bibles this morning? Right, coming into 2023, coming in hot. Let's hold them up. This is a Bible. This is really good. You can hold up your phone if you'd like. I see a couple phones back there. Hey, praise the Lord for digital devices. Man, let me encourage you, open your Bible and find your way to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, the first of the four Gospels, the first account we find in our New Testament of Jesus' life and his message. And man, I'm just so excited. I saw a bunch of Gospel City kids with their Bibles showing up, us adults. Man, praise the Lord, something's happening back there. Hey, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. I hope you have your eyes on a copy of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word for us this morning. Well, hey, as we prepare to jump into Matthew chapter 5, I just want to ask a quick question. What would you consider to be a classic? When I say the word classic, like what comes into your mind? Probably things like a a 1967 red Ford Mustang convertible. That's a classic. Maybe the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Maybe, they, maybe you're a loader type of person. Hey, that's a classic. Bluey? Yeah. We got some Bluey fans in the house this morning. Okay, that's a classic. Thomas the Train? A little choo-choo, a little chug-a-chug. That's a classic, right? Maybe it's the Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe Lord of the Rings isn't your thing. Maybe it's Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe Aslan fan. That's a classic. Maybe... Maybe it's not any of those. Maybe it's Rudy. Maybe that's the classic for you. Or maybe you're like me. And when I think of the word classic, I think of a single origin, organic, home-roasted, pour-over, African bean, overlooking a mountain vista in the Rockies in the middle of January, snow-capped, sun peeking through the clouds, and the mist coming up from my cup, and I'm smelling those sweet notes of cocoa and raspberry, and I go... This is a classic. Maybe that's you. Maybe not. I don't know. No matter where you are, like we all have this idea of what a classic is. I mean, this uh, about two weeks ago, we introduced our kids to some classic Christmas 
movies. Janelle and I sat down and Jackson and Adelaide were with us and we turned on Tim Allen, Tim the Tool Man Taylor, at his best in the Santa Claus. And man, we loved it. And then we realized, man, there's the Santa Claus too, right? We can't just have the first name. We need to have the escape clause or the, the Mrs. Claus, right? So we got Santa Claus too. And then we watched the Santa Claus three and that was a mistake. And you know, and it is what it is. I mean, they were classics, right? So in your head right now, and maybe, maybe you're going through and you're going, man, none of those things are what I would consider classics, right? I mean, it's not Bluey, it's not Thomas the Train, it's not Rudy, it's not the Santa Claus. Well, if that's you, then, then let me just define classic for us. Classic, as defined, is a work of art of recognized or established value. Think the Mona Lisa. She's not that pretty, but it's a classic. Or something judged over a period of time to be of the highest quality and outstanding of its kind. Man, if that's the definition of a classic, then I'm sure we're all agreeing that that picture of a cup of coffee with those mountain vistas is a classic. And the thing is, is that when we come into Matthew chapter 5, what we're entering into is what proponents and critics alike would laud as a classic Man, a work of established value that over time has been pointed at and said that has extreme value. What Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is he's delivering what we affectionately call the Sermon on the Mount. A classic work. A work that's often quoted, a work that is often turned to from critics and proponents that says this is what Jesus is teaching. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it lays out for us, if we are disciples of Jesus, a radical view of what discipleship looks like. And in Matthew chapter 5, in the first 12 verses, in what we call the Beatitudes, what Jesus is doing is he's outlining for us what life in the kingdom looks like. And he steps into the conversation, he steps into the scene, and he says, for those who have repented and followed me, this is what life in my kingdom here and now looks like. It's a classic. So as we look at these verses this morning, and as we unpack what Jesus is saying, I hope we take away this one thing. I hope what we see and what we realize is simply this, that in the Beatitudes, in the first 12 verses, that Jesus invites disciples to live a blessed life that demonstrates his kingdom to the lost world. That's it. Man, as we dig down deep into these 12 verses, we're only going to strive for understanding that one singular statement that Jesus invites disciples to live a blessed life that demonstrates his kingdom to a lost world. And church, hear me. I firmly believe that if we understand that at the outset of a new year, your families will look different. Your community will look different. Your school will look different. Your coworkers will see a difference. Your recreation spaces will experience a difference. Our church family would see the beauty of life lived in the kingdom if we grasp this one thing. So in order for us to see that, we're gonna do two things this morning. We're gonna define a word and we're gonna ask a question. 
The word we're first going to define is the word blessed because if you've lived anywhere in the South, then you have a different definition than the rest of us. 21 years down South, I have a definition of blessed that differs from you Midwestern folk, and that's fine. So in order for us to get on the same page, we're going to define the word blessed, and then we're going to seek to ask and answer a simple question. And the question would be is, what does the blessed life of a disciple in Jesus' kingdom look like? So if indeed Jesus invites disciples to live a blessed life that demonstrates his kingdom to a lost world, then if you and I are in fact his disciples, then what does that look like in the here and now? And I would present before you that the Beatitudes teach us three things of what it looks like for the life of a kingdom disciple. The Beatitudes teach us that in order for us to have a kingdom life, we need to have a proper Oh, see what I did there. A proper position before God, a righteous pursuit of God, and a right passion for people. That's it. That's where we're going this morning. Are we ready? Okay, let's go. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to define the word blessed. When we read through the Beatitudes, Jesus uses this word some nine times. And it's always a good principle of Bible study when we're looking at Scripture and when we're examining it, when there's a word that's repeated, it should cause us to pause, take a step back and go, what do you mean? What, what does that word actually mean? Well, Matthew chapter 5, the word Jesus uses is the word makarios. It's a word we've translated blessed. It's a word that could simply be defined as happy or blissful. It's a word that carries with it this idea of satisfaction and pleasure in our position before God as one of his disciples. So as Jesus comes into the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapter 5, and as he begins this classic sermon, he's giving us a plan for disciples to represent him to the world. And as he does so, he begins by telling us, happy, blissful, fortunate are you who are poor in spirit? Are you who mourn? Are you who are meek? Are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are you who are merciful? Oh, man, blissful, happy, fortunate are you who are pure in heart and who are peacemakers. Happy, blissful, fortunate are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's the blessed life that Jesus gives disciples. The Beatitudes, by the way, as we look at them, we'll see that they build upon themselves. And Jesus begins by making the distinction that kingdom living is only accessible by kingdom disciples who are committed to following him. I hope your Bibles are still open and I hope your eyes are down on the page. Notice how our text begins this morning. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, them being the disciples. Now, the question we should ask before we even look at what the life of a kingdom disciple is, is why in the world are crowds following Jesus? What has Jesus done so far to garner the attention of the crowd? It's a great question. And to find the answer, we got to flip back one chapter to Matthew chapter 4. Specifically, two different verses, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we see this statement from Matthew. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the first message Jesus says when he begins his public ministry is super simple. Repent. Turn away from your sinfulness 
Enter into the kingdom. There's, there's a greater king that's here, and this oppressive kingdom you're living in isn't where you have to live anymore. You can have access to the kingdom of heaven, but it costs you something. It costs you your repentance. Because Jesus pays the price, and we must turn from our sins and follow him. But notice, not just Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and Jesus goes throughout all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Realize that the crowds were following Jesus because of the message he was proclaiming and the acts that he was doing. But here in Matthew chapter 5, there's a distinction that he makes. Coming up onto the mountain, he looks at the crowd and he doesn't address them. He turns to his disciples and he begins to tell them, this is what the blessed life looks like. So for you and I, I mean, we got to start with the context in mind. I mean, there are two distinct groups of people, the crowds that are far from Jesus that are just there to gain some sort of acknowledgement by him or to hear what he has to say. And then his disciples who are sitting at his feet listening to what he has said. How then do we move from the crowd and into the kingdom? We move from the crowd into the kingdom by repentance. Jesus' message in Matthew 4, 17 is the message that we still proclaim today. That you and I are born in rebellion to God. We are born as a part of the crowd And it takes repentance to come into the kingdom. That Jesus being born of the virgin, living a perfect life, a life that you and I can never live, dying a substitutionary death, the death you deserve and the death I deserve for the sins we were born into. Jesus dying that substitutionary death for all who would believe, being buried and resurrected on the third day and ascended to the right hand of God even now, making intercession for those who would believe that Jesus is who we place our faith in. And church, hear me. When we move from the crowd to the kingdom, everything changes. Everything. We have access to the blessedness, the happiness, the blissfulness, the pleasure of God through faith in Christ. So this morning, before we even jump into our points, before we jump into our text, the first thing we have to see is the distinction between the crowd and the kingdom. And there's an invitation for you. If you aren't in the kingdom, hear me. Repent of your sins. Place your faith in Christ alone. Step out of the crowd and into the kingdom. All the crowd's going to do throughout the whole entire Sermon on the Mount is they're just going to hear the words of Jesus. What disciples will do throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount is they will hear and embrace, live what Jesus says. That leads us to our first point. If we are, in fact, kingdom disciples and we have a proper position before God... Notice how Jesus begins. Right, seeing the crowds, he goes up onto the mountain and he sits down and his disciples come to him and he opens his mouth and he teaches them. And notice how he's teaching them. The first words out of Jesus' mouth to his disciples. Blessed are the, poor, <clears throat> are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, now at this point, if I'm a disciple, man, I'm crisscross applesauce. I got my listening ears on. Like I have done everything I can to remove the distractions and I am cued in. I am ready for what he's about to say. I want some God wisdom dropped on me and here is it in a nutshell. And Jesus opens his mouth and he says, bless. I'm like, all right, I want to be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And at that moment, if I'm one of his disciples, I'm cocking my head to the side. You know what I mean? Like the, the way your dog does when you try and talk to him in regular language, right? And just go, what? Yeah, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit here in the Beatitudes, what it specifically refers to, it, it's not a material thing. The poor in spirit are those who see their destitution before a holy God. The poor in spirit are those who have identified the sin in their lives, have repented of it and placed their faith in Christ. The poor in spirit, they see themselves in proper estimation before him. That I don't come to God as if I'm his equal. I come to God, prostrate before him and say, in my poverty of spirit, I can't even come close to you. Do you see the blessing that follows? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is occupied by those who have poverty of spirit. But notice Jesus doesn't end there. He continues on. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. That idea for mourning, the word Jesus, is use, Jesus uses there is it's one of the most intense words for mourning that we find in the New Testament. It's a word that, that carries with this idea of just weeping and just crying. And the picture that is in mind here, the blessing that follows, isn't in the mourning. The blessing is in the promise. Do you see it in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. Realize that when we acknowledge our poverty of spirit, when we see our sinfulness in right estimation before a holy God, it should cause us to mourn deeply over the offensiveness of it to a holy God. And the promise, the blessing, is that we will be comforted. I mean, in my mind, I'm just processing through the the middle school student who has just committed their life to Jesus, who's about to step into Discovery Middle School and walk the halls and try their best to live their faith. And they just desire to be comforted by God because they've seen and acknowledged their sinfulness before him. I mean, I'm processing through and I'm thinking about the husband who desires to lead his family well and is modeling for them poverty of spirit and mourning over his sin. And before his wife and his children is confessing and saying, oh, the, the sinfulness of my sin before a holy God and weeping over it, seeking the comfort of the Lord. I'm thinking of the young adult who's gonna walk into their workplace and as she does, man, she desires to live a life passionate for Jesus. And as she lives in the competing kingdom to the kingdom of heaven, she's modeling for those co-workers a right estimation of her sin before a holy God. Church, hear me. When we see our sinfulness before a holy God and when we mourn our sinfulness, the promise is that we'll experience comfort. 
Could it be as we start 2023 that you need to experience the comfort that God promises when we mourn our sin? Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's showing them the right position. He's showing them what it looks like to be before him. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And notice what he says next. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Hey, when was the last time you used the word meek in a conversation? This week? This last year? And when I think about the word meek, like my mind immediately goes to like word association and meek sounds like meat. So meek is something you can eat, which isn't true. So don't try it. Don't order it. Like, hey, I'd like meek, medium rare, please. It's just not going to work for you, right? So the word meek here in the Sermon on the Mount, it's a word that means humble gentleness, humble power and control. In fact, in the gospels, one of the only things, one of the only characteristics of Jesus that we see Attributed to him is meekness. That he has a humbleness about him, a control, a gentleness about him. That Jesus is that one who has power under control, humble strength. As we look at our position before God, meekness realizes a necessary component for the disciple's life. And it reveals our rightful position before him. Remember the Beatitudes, they build upon one another. So it begins with our poverty of spirit. Our poverty of spirit leads us to mourn our sin. And as we do, we're comforted by the God of the universe. And then that comfort, that mourning fuels our meekness, our humble strength, our gentleness. And notice the promise. Blessed are the meek. Why? for they shall inherit the earth. When we have poverty of spirit, mourning over sin and meekness before a holy God, the promise is, is that the kingdom of heaven will be ours. We will be comforted and the inheritance promised to us through relationship in Jesus Christ is yours. The blessed life, the happy, satisfied life finds its roots in our position before God. And as we hit reset and enter into a new year, Gospel City, ask yourselves this question. Are you modeling the blessedness of being a disciple of Jesus? Are you a display case for the beauty of what God has done in and through you? Are you showing your families, your neighbors, your coworkers, your schoolmates? Are you showing them what a blessed life looks like in commitment and devotion to Christ? It all begins by understanding your position before him. Life, the blessed life, kingdom disciples realize that it begins with a right estimation, a right understanding of your position before him. And number two, it leads to a righteous pursuit of God. Notice as we look at verses six and seven that there's a shift that happened in the Beatitudes. And, and the shift comes from our position before him to our pursuit of him. Now, I don't know if this is true of you, but it's true of me that, that whatever I spend my time, attention, and devotion to is what I pursue. So I don't know if you knew this, but there was a time in my life where I was lauded as a premier tuba player. Would, would you believe that? I know. 
I know, you're shocked, right? It was sixth grade. I was entering out of or entering into K-Spring Junior High School, walking down the halls, learning how to do a combination lock, wearing my speed stick must deodorant. You guys probably still wear it, right? Smelling wonderful as I did, wearing that plaid shirt with just a white undershirt, top button buttoned. This is literally what I looked like my first day of sixth grade, right here. Tell me how great this is. Don't act like you didn't do it too, okay? So it's early 2000s, and man, the world, I gotta undo this, man, golly. All right, here we go. The world is before me, and, and I got a decision to make, right? I'm, I'm out of elementary school, I'm walking into the new life of junior high, and I have choices. They're called electives, and there were two of them. It was band or choir. So my four foot 11, 125 pound self, this high, this wide, decides in band class, I'm gonna do the tuba. I mean, I'm gonna devote all my time, energy, and affection to the tuba. In fact, I don't just wanna do the tuba during school, I wanna come early to jazz band and be a part of the jazz band with the tuba. Do you know how many jazz numbers feature a tuba? Zero, zero. But for some reason, man, I was there. Three buttons, I was going up and down, bass clefts. Is that what it's called, Sammy? I don't know, right? And I'm playing, I'm seeing whole notes and I'm reading music and I'm going, I got awarded the sixth grade musician of the year for playing the tuba. And then it happened. Do you know what happened? About a year and a half later, George. George happened. George was an upperclassman. George still haunts my dreams. George comes in and George also plays the tuba. And George quickly debunks my tuba throne. And all of a sudden, overnight, I have no desire for the tuba, right? I don't want anything to do with it. I don't even remember what a scale looks like. My passion, my pursuit, my time, talent, affection, and energy was all poured into something that had no lasting value. I'm also tempted today to do that same thing. I mean, when I look at my hobbies, my interests, what I commit my time, energy, and affection towards, the competing kingdoms of this world are always at war against the kingdom of heaven in my heart. And what Jesus declares to us here in the Sermon on the Mount is that you must, you must have a right pursuit, a righteous pursuit of God. As a kingdom disciple, your primary pursuit should be him. Your primary pursuit should be him. And yet the competing kingdom of this world is gonna tempt you to pursue other things, lesser things that provide no satisfaction. Notice the next beatitude that we see. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. The idea, the picture there is that man, your primary pursuit is a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. That your hunger and thirst, the word Jesus uses there, it's a word that brings to mind intense cravings. Think pregnancy cravings if you're a woman. Think sympathy pregnancy cravings if you're a man, right? right? I gained weight just like my wife, but hers was baby and mine wasn't, right? Just, just think the intense cravings of what it would feel like if you're in the middle of the desert and all you desire is a drop of water. Think intense cravings of what it would feel like if you've gone days upon days upon days without eating and the most disgusting morsel of food looks enjoyable to you. Jesus says, blessed are you. Blissful, happy, fortunate are you when you hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. For you shall be satisfied. The satisfaction of a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others is what we strive for as a kingdom disciple. But can I ask you, where are your primary pursuits? Could it be athletics? Could it be academics? Could it be relationships? Could it be a social status? Could it be your career? Could it be substances that you're abusing? Could it be addictions that you're hiding? Could it be your own children? What is it that you hunger and thirst for? As a kingdom disciple, and we understand our right position before him, and we see our poverty of spirit that leads to our mourning over sin, that presents us as meek before a holy God, then what he tells us is with that right position in mind, we have a righteous pursuit before us. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Even as a sixth grade boy, I knew the tuba would never satisfy me. And yet the competing kingdom of the world still rages around me. And the temptations will still be there. Whether you're eight or 80, it doesn't matter. And here's the weird thing. Is that, man, when your primary pursuit, when you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and when you find your satisfaction in God, the most beautiful thing that happens is he gives you beauty in his creation. He allows you to enjoy that wonderful meal to sit at that athletic competition and not be an idiot. He gives you the ability to have deep relationships that provide satisfaction for you, a marriage that's beautiful. He gives you all of these things to enjoy, but it flows out of my primary pursuit. It isn't my primary pursuit. Because when I exchange his creation for, the, for him, I come up wanting every time. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the right relationship with God and the right relationship with others, for they shall be satisfied. But notice what he says next. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. With our primary pursuit being righteousness, it's really not a big step for us to see how now, with the right position before him and a right pursuit of him, we hunger and thirst for righteousness and now blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Of all the people in the world, the ones that should showcase and give mercy the most are disciples of Jesus. Do you know why? Because you've experienced what it looks like to receive mercy, mercy that you didn't deserve. Mercy is compassion. Mercy is being willing to wade into the sinfulness of others and show them the beauty of Jesus. Mercy is extending care and concern for those that have hurt you. Church, blessed are the merciful. Those that extend mercy to those that don't deserve it. Because in so doing, we reflect the mercy we've been given. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So let me ask, if you have a right standing before God, what are you pursuing? 
If you're a kingdom disciple, if you've repented of your sins, if you're not in the crowd, but you're in the kingdom, you're crisscross applesauce in front of Jesus on the mount, and he's proclaiming these blessings to you, what indeed are you pursuing? What is it that holds your affection, that holds your attention, that you commit your time, energy to? What is it? Again, the temptations will always be to give it to the competing kingdom of the world. But what Jesus declares that the blessed life of a disciple, your pursuit is righteousness and mercy. And as an overflow of that, enjoy the beauty of his creation. What are you hungering and thirsting for? What are you freely giving? Is it mercy? Or is it anger? What is it that drives you as a disciple? Where is your primary devotion? Kingdom disciples, we understand that our position before God impacts our righteous pursuit of him, which leads us to our third and final point this morning, which is simply this. Kingdom disciples have a right passion for people. A right passion for people. These last three Beatitudes, they are a natural overflow or a natural outcome of the prior five. So what's happening here, again, is the Beatitudes are building upon themselves. When we have poverty of spirit, when we mourn our sin, when we're meek before God, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and when we indeed are merciful, then what happens is verse 7 or verse 8. What happens, what the result of that is, is purity of heart. For they shall see God. That word for pure of heart, by the way, is a word that carries with it this idea that there is nothing obstructing your view. I mean, when your heart is clean, pure, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, when you are merciful, when you are meek, when you are poor of spirit, when you are mourning your sin, your heart is pure before God. And when that is the case, you have a clear view of who he is. I mean, I can remember uh, back in 2006 when this young girl named Janelle Goyette strolled onto Liberty University's campus. And man, my eyes quickly flitted over to her. And as I saw her, she was the only thing I desired to pursue. Unobstructed. It was weird how much this biblical studies major found his way into business conversations. I know nothing about market analysis, but you better believe I was asking her to study. Right? It was weird how much I needed help. Right? Hey, do you want to quiz me on the books of the Bible? Let's start with the first one. What was that? Genesis. Yeah. My pursuit, she had my singular focus, my attention, my pursuit was purely fixed upon her. And that's just a microscopic perspective of what it means for you and I to have a pure, unobstructed view of God. If I can find ways in an 8,000 person campus to find her, and how much more so as I search God's word and as I seek him out, should I find ways to have an unobstructed, unadulterated view of who he is? When we have a right passion for people, we have a purity of heart before God. We are seeing him singularly 
He is our sole focus. And the promise is, is that when we have purity of heart, we will see God. And our view of God fuels the next beatitude he gives us in verse 9. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. A right view of God gives us a right view of ourselves. A right view of ourselves, when we see ourselves prior to Christ, we realize we are at war with him. And yet somehow, some way, through the gospel, we have peace. And realize this kingdom, disciple, that you are sent on the greatest peacemaking mission the world has ever known. That to be a peacemaker is, is simply to proclaim the peace you have experienced. Much like being merciful is to give mercy that you have experienced. But the kingdom disciple, man, they have a right passion for people. Because they see God as who he is. They are pure in heart. And then they begin to proclaim a message of peace that is at odds with the kingdom of the world. This competing kingdom is not going to proclaim the message of peace that the gospel offers. And yet as a kingdom disciple, the promise, the proclamation is, blessed are, happy are, beautiful are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We represent our family when we proclaim peace. Do you realize that? That man, in your homes, with your children, what you proclaim will show what family you belong to. Are you a son or daughter of God? Or are you a part of a competing kingdom? That when we open our mouths in our workplaces or in our schools, when we proclaim the peace of God and the peace with others, then what we're showing is the family we belong to. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You will represent your family well with a right passion for people. With God as your focus and the gospel as your message, the world will change. Which leads us to our final beatitude this morning as we look at the right passion for people. Notice, blessed or happy, blissful are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, you gotta ask the question, why is persecution making me happy? What about persecution would make the kingdom disciple happy? And the answer is found in what you're being persecuted for. Notice it's not blessed are those who are persecuted for your foolishness's sake. It's not blessed are you who are persecuted because you messed up's sake. It's blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you notice that we began and we end with the same result of blessing? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven will be occupied by those who are poor in spirit and who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And the crazy thing is, is that we have access to that kingdom here and now, and what a joyous company we will be in. So this morning, as we come to a conclusion, as we land the plane, I want to attempt for us to express in one simple statement all of these beatitudes that we've just seen. That for the kingdom disciple, the blessing promised by Jesus is given to men and women who are poor in spirit, who mourn their sin, who exhibit meekness before God, 
who desire God's righteousness and express mercy to others, who have hearts fully focused on God, who strive to establish peace and willingly endure persecution on account of righteousness' sake. Such are the blessings promised to you, kingdom disciple. To you, follower of Jesus. Jesus gives us here in these first 12 verses a radically new view of discipleship. He gives us a snapshot of what a kingdom disciple is and how a kingdom disciple reflects his kingdom here and now. So church, could it be as we close and as we hit reset on a new year, could it be that we need a new consideration of our discipleship to him? That we need a new consideration of what it looks like to be committed to the life that Jesus promises us. That here in Matthew chapter 5, we find a picture of the blessed life. And this year, as we step into 2023, as we step in as a church family to a new season, man, let me just encourage us, trust God at his word. That through Christ, you have all that you need to be a kingdom disciple. The Beatitudes, they're not for a select few. They're for everyone who has called upon Jesus as Lord and Savior. They're for you. They're for me, if that's true of us. And that through Christ, you have all you need to be a kingdom disciple. And you have the mandate to reflect Jesus' kingdom here and now. How do we do that? We do that through a right understanding of our position before him, a righteous pursuit of him, and a right passion for people. We allow our poverty of spirit to bring us to mourning, to lead us to meekness, to reveal what we're hungering and thirsting for, to help us exhibit mercy, to pursue purity of heart before God, to proclaim a message of peace, and ultimately to be willing to endure persecution for that message. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're not a part of the crowd, but you're a part of the kingdom, are you living the blessed life he promises? This morning, maybe that's not the challenge you need to hear. Maybe for you, you're just hanging out in the crowd. I mean, you're, you're on the edges and you're listening to what Jesus said. I mean, that's pretty cool. That's pretty nice. Could I invite you one more time into the kingdom? I mean, what Christ offers you is far greater than the competing kingdoms of this world. He offers you in complete satisfaction in him. Complete pursuit in him. Peace and mercy through him. Maybe for you, if you're a part of the crowd, maybe you need to hear, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has come. And he has ushered in a new kingdom that is unlike any kingdom this world could ever offer. And he invites you to take a part of it with him. If only you would repent and place your faith and trust in Christ. Either way, we have challenges set before us. Will we live the blessed life Jesus promises us as a disciple? Or will we repent and enter the kingdom like Jesus offers? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word gives us clarity on what it means and looks like to live a life, or to live a blessed life that reflects your kingdom to a lost world. 
Father, with the reality of competing kingdoms all around us, may we who are in fact disciples of yours maintain a purity of heart. Help us to see you this year. Help us to see you today. Help us to mourn deeply over our sin and experience the comfort you promise. Help us, Lord, to take the mercy we've received and freely give it to others. Lord, may our pursuits not be of temporal things, but rather, Father, may our primary pursuit be you. Lord, help us to experience the satisfaction that you promise. And Lord, with the message of peace on our lips, may we indeed be sons and daughters of yours as we proclaim the peacemaking message of the gospel. Lord, it flows out of our desire to be a part of your kingdom. To be a part of your kingdom with those who are poor in spirit and with those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. May it be, Lord. As to you, Father, we pray in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit.